Well, good morning. One of the first verses I ever underscored in a Bible, I wasn't a Christian at the time, but I had received this Bible when I was a little kid, was John 10, 10. And uh, that verse goes something like this, uh, that I've come that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly. Doesn't that sound appealing, to have an abundant life? And so how many of you here would say, right now I am absolutely experiencing an abundant life? There are people, even if they're not Christians, they they want to have that abundant life. There was an author years ago in the middle of the 1800s. His name was Henry David Thoreau. He was a transcendentalist, was really seeking an abundant life. And uh, he, he even mentioned in his book that he wrote in 1854, A Walden, or Life in the Woods, he mentions on page four that, that living is so dear. So his whole objective then was to suck all the marrow out of life. And yet he was, he was so discouraged by what he saw around him. And as he looked around at people's lives, people were so caught up in the trivialities of life, like fashion and social status, accumulation, entertainments. He called them shams, delusions, and vanity parasites. And so he, Emerson gave him this little cabin in the woods uh, out of Concord, Massachusetts to, to live in. So he lived there for two years, two months, and two days. And what he tried to do is get away from all those sham parasites um, that people, he said, the mass, on page four, he says, the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. They were seeking this, this abundant life that Jesus promises, but, but they're leading lives of, of quiet desperation. And so after those two years, he, dis- he discovered that a life of simplicity, a life of solitude, a life of minimization really wasn't the answer. And I thought, well, while he was in that cabin for two years reading the classics in Latin and in Greek, you know, if he would have turned to the Bible, if he would have just turned back to the wisest man at the time that ever lived, Solomon, uh, he wrote in in a book 3,000 years ago that even that pursuit, whether it be the pursuit of of those sham parasites or whether it be the, the pursuit of getting rid of it all is just vanity. It's, it's chasing after the, and striving after the winds. That's exactly what Luke uh, wrote a couple of thousand years ago. Take care then, be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Whether it be a lot of possessions or very few possessions, life just isn't there. An abundant life isn't there. And so where is an abundant life? Well, Paul puts it very, very simply. If we want to suck all the morrow out of life and discover life as God intended, an abundant life, then the Apostle Paul makes it so simple in Philippians 1.21. He just put it this way. For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. I think that's one good reason that our mission statement is so simply to pursue Jesus together in everyday life. It's about the same time that Paul wrote that in the year 61 AD. He also wrote uh, to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians 2 that we, we're God's workmanship and we're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God even prepared beforehand that we would walk uh, in these good works. So 
we as believers would certainly agree uh, with Thoreau when he talks about that uh, living is very precious, living is very dear. Uh, but we would disagree saying that the, the path to that is through simplicity and solitude and minimization. Uh, we, what we would say along with the Apostle Paul, it really, it really comes ultimately by using the transitory gifts that God gives us and he allows us to steward. Not only, it includes this, but not only for our own enjoyment where he promises that abundant life but also for the glory of God, for the good of his kingdom, and for the good of others. And so Paul instructs us this way, even if we were to happen to have more than we need. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, for as the rich in this present age charge them not to be haughty, don't, don't set your hope. Just life isn't about possessions and things. Don't set your hope on, on all that stuff on the uncertainty of riches, but set them on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. That's the John 10, 10. They're to do good. We are to be rich in good works. That's Ephesians 2 says, God prepares these in advance for us that we might walk in them, to be generous, to be ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life, the very thing Thoreau was looking for, the very thing Jesus promises to us. You see, there are three options all of us have for life. We can either waste our lives, we can either spend our lives, or we can invest our lives. And I think what we're going to see today is the best use of your life is to invest your life in something that's going to outlast your life, to invest it in God's kingdom, and to invest it for the good of others. So I would say if you were to put together a thesis statement or the big idea of all we're trying to talk about today is that a disciple should be generous with his time, talent, treasure, because everything has been given to him by God for, for your enjoyment, but also for the furtherance of God's kingdom and for the good of others. So as we pursue Jesus together in everyday life, we say, what does that look like in the life of a disciple? Well, that would be the, the series that we're in today, the DNA of a disciple, of a Parkview attender, that we are people who enjoy God's presence, that we live out God's story, that we love God's people, and then today we're looking, as Doug mentioned, sharing God's gifts. Now, we're going to look at a parable. It's a very famous parable, and uh, I think the beauty of this parable is that he gives it before, right before he dies, Matthew 25, right before he goes to the cross, because he knows he's getting ready to leave his disciples, and if the disciples are going to make an impact for the glory of God, they have, they have got to understand they just can't sit around and mope. They just can't sit around with everything Jesus has given to them and do nothing. They have got to invest it for the, for the kingdom of God. And why wouldn't we want to do that? I mean, after all, God so loves that he gives Jesus so loved us 
that he gave. I mean, we tried the other route. I mean, you go back to Genesis chapter 1. When, when we started looking out after ourselves, doing, instead of doing it God's way, we started doing it our way. <laughs> it doesn't take much reading to, to figure out that just doesn't work. That's the whole issue of sin. We go our way rather than God's way. And we fall short. And the whole story of the Bible is Jesus trying to reconcile us then back to God, God having to pay that price for our waywardness by becoming a human being, by becoming Jesus, God in the flesh, who lives a perfect life, who dies on a cross to set us free from that tyranny. Why should we have to go through life like Thoreau? spending two years in a cabin next to a pond trying to figure this out. There is life in Christ. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So like Thoreau, I mean, certainly we want our life to count. We understand that living is dear, but it's not going to come just through solitude. It's not going to come uh, through simplicity. It's not going to come by just pampering ourselves. He wants to give us an abundant life. And Matthew 25, this parable in Matthew 25, gives us a wonderful picture of, I, I just read it and just come across with, there's so many principles for living. There's so many lessons for living in this, in this one parable. I want to just go through a few of them. Let's look at these seven major principles. But there's so many applications, and, and I've, get, I've written down a few of them for you, and there's so many more that you could write, write down as well. Let's look at this first principle that is so critical, and that's the principle of ownership, that Everything I have belongs to God. God made it all. He owns it all. God is not only the creator. God is the owner. Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Everything that you see, God owns. We, we get to use it for a little while. God calls us to be a steward over what he gifts to us to use. But the fact is, we really never own anything. But we do have the task of managing it. So we are stewards, we're not owners. We're managers, we're not possessors. We are distributors, but we have never been called to be hoarders. That's why Jesus said what he said and during, during the, the little video presentation, we read these verses. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Moth and rust destroy, thieves break in and steal. Instead, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither rust nor, uh, moth or rust destroy, but where thieves break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then down to verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these other things will be added to you. Therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So Jesus wants to drive that home in this incredible parable. He first says that in Matthew 6, but in Matthew 25, he gives us this wonderful, wonderful parable. And that first principle is ownership. And he starts the parable with that first principle. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants, 
and now he's talking to the disciples there, and that's, that's us. Um, and he entrusted to them his property. I mean, underscore that <laughs> in your Bible, if you've opened your Bible to Matthew 25, he entrusted to us his property. He didn't challenge them about their property. He entrusted to them uh, his property. That's that principle of ownership. But secondly, there's the principle of allocation. God has given every single person some talents. So the next verse, verse 15, uh, to one he gave five, to another two, to another one, each according to his ability, and then he goes away. Our, our word talent actually comes from this story, but there are different kinds of talents. Obviously, that's the point that Jesus is making here. There are abilities, and Jesus certainly had to rely on the abilities of the disciples there at that point. There are the resources that they have, time and talent and treasure. There are opportunities, and you see that throughout the book of Acts. So there's abilities, resources, opportunities. These three are a trust. They are gifts from God that he prepared even beforehand that they should walk in them, Ephesians 2.10. We don't own them. They're just allocated to us. So the lesson, a takeaway, one takeaway, is that the amount's going to differ for each person, but everybody gets something. There, there are no no-talent people. And that Paul talks about that in Romans 12, having gifts that differ, differ according to the grace. I mean, they're gifts, the grace given to us. Let's then put them to work. Let's use them. So we're unique, we're different, but every person does have at least a gift of some kind from God. So now I want to I come back to verses 16 to 18 in just a second, but I want to drive this point home by skipping forward to verse 19. So we've looked at the principle of ownership and allocation, but I want you to immediately see, before we go a step further, of accountability. God expects you to use the talents, the abilities, resources, and opportunities for him. Let's say, for example, you're fortunate enough to get $5,000, $10,000, $100,000, and, and you want to take it to some investment broker uh, to invest that money, to invest that money for you. Now, what, what do you expect? Well, if you're going to take it to an investment broker, you expect what? You expect a return on that investment, right? And if you don't get a return, you're going to probably get a, a different broker. Well, God has made an investment in you. He wants a return from you. He doesn't want you to spend it. He doesn't want you to waste it. He wants you to invest it. So now verse 19 says, after a long time, the master of those three servants came and settled accounts with them. Circle that word, settled accounts. And you know what that means? That means there will come a day when you will be audited by God. How many of you have been audited by the IRLs? A lot of fun, right? Well, that's nothing compared to being audited by God. There, God is going to do an audit 
on your life. Why? Because he created you, he equipped you, he actually even gave you works that he, he purposefully designed for you, even before you existed. And he's going to do an audit to see how you did. One day, each of us will have to give an account. Did we waste it? Did we spend it? Or did we invest it? Um, so here's the heads-up question when you sit before the Lord Jesus Christ on that day of the audit. Here's going to be the question. What did you do with the gifts you were given? That's the audit question that Jesus will ask you. What did you do with the gifts that you were given? So Jesus wants to drive this point home in the parable. Why? Because he's getting ready to go to the cross. He's getting ready to to die and be resurrected, and it's just going to leave these disciples there with all they are going to have is they've got the abilities God has given them, but unbelievable opportunities. What are they going to do with it? So fourth principle is utilization. It's absolutely wrong just to bury what God has given you, to bury your talents. So he who had received the five talents went at once, traded them, made five more. He also, the one who had given him two talents, were given two talents, made two more. But he who had received the one talent went away and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. So he expects us to invest for his purposes, for his glory, for the good of others. The five-talent man invested, made five more. Two talent, didn't matter how much, but the two-talent guy goes out and invests, makes two more. The one-talent man buries his talent. This third guy is cautious, he's conservative. His philosophy of life uh, tends to be incredibly calculating and, and conservative, so he took the one talent that God gave him, and he sat on it. He made no effort whatsoever to do what, God, what, what the master wanted him to do with it. He just sat on his talent. So what's the master's reaction to this? Now, let me make the point. He didn't go out and, and, and hire prostitutes. He didn't go out and, and sell drugs. It's not like he, he did horrible things. All he did was nothing. Okay, so let's look at the master's reaction for the guy who just played it safe, who played it cautious, who, who played it conservative, who absolutely did nothing. The master answered him, you wicked, you slothful servant. You, knew, you, you would think those words wicked, slothful would be, you know, if he would have bought drugs or if he would have uh, hired prostitutes or, you know, then, you, then you're wicked. No, this guy, all he did was nothing. You, you wicked, slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown. You gather where I've scattered no seed. Then you ought to have at least invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming, I would have received uh, my own uh, with interest. He didn't even put it in the bank. You know, his sin, folks, wasn't these horrible things. His sin was just nothing, inactivity, passivity, doing nothing. He, all he was interested in was playing it super safe. So, I mean, the big takeaway for me is that you can't please God by just playing it safe, okay? Do you see anything humanly wrong with that third slave? Not really. I mean, 
It's not like he was a bad person. It wasn't like he was an immoral person. Uh, but to do nothing with his resources uh, for his purposes um, is, he says, it's wicked, it's lazy, it's slothful. So you cannot, here's, let me drive it home. You cannot please God by playing it safe. You've got to take some risk. And, and any kind of investment, you in, 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 involve risk, Right? You've got to take some risks. Now, Jeff, why would you say that? That doesn't even sound biblical. You've got to take risks, and I'll tell you why. It's because the Bible says that without risks, you don't need any, what's the word? Faith. Without taking a risk, you need no faith. Next week, I'll be at, at Harvest City, and that's a passage I'm going to be dealing with in, out of John. Uh, it takes no faith. And without faith, what does Hebrews 11 verse 6 say? Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. That's, without faith, we're very rational. Okay, so if you're, are you going through the Parkview DNA booklet? on these passages we're going through. Uh, well, I really encourage you to do that. And uh, so for this message, we're on like pages 92 to 99. And in those, in those pages there, uh, you're, gonna, you're gonna get to this Parkview Embraces irrational, not rational, but irrational generosity. Because risking in faith, humanly speaking, is a little irra irrational. And, and I'll make a few examples of that in a second. But uh, we want to we please God. So let me just ask you, what risks have you taken this week or this month or this year in faith for the glory of God and for the good of others? How pleasing were you to God this week? I mean, you think of, of giving... You look at the Old Testament. The whole aspect of giving is based upon what? First fruits. Giving first fruits. That's irrational. No, what's rational is you, you get money, you spend it during the month, and if you have any leftover, then you give part of that. That's rational. But that's not the Bible. The Bible says, no, it's irrational because we're encouraged to give first fruits. The first part that comes in, that's the part that we give uh, to God. So the point here is do, doing nothing with your life, whether it be your time, your talent, your treasure, your opportunities, doing nothing, sitting by, do, playing it safe, doing nothing is absolutely inexcusable. God would much rather me try something and blow it than do nothing because it's when I step out in faith that I can please God. You know, we have set an awful lot of big goals for this church. And I, I'm, I know by now you've heard of 2020 vision and, and you've heard this over and over and over for the last uh, year or so. It's 
the expansion with Faith Academy, taking on another grade, the purchase of the L to allow that to become a reality, uh, going to multiple sites, because the gospel can be spread better in multiple locations, multiple sites. Um, I mean, that, folks, is a vision of incredible faith. I, I'll tell you, I, I love Doug Schillinger, and uh, he, his vision for Parkview is not limited by risks. I mean, it is faith because, and I'm glad of the succession thing because I tend to be a little more rational. <laughs> you know, I, I tend to look at it and go, well, I, you know, I start counting costs and all this stuff and um, starts to make my head spin. But uh, these are some significant steps of faith, significant steps of faith. And God has called Doug to take these significant steps of faith, and we as believers in Jesus Christ, we're urged. We're urged to take these steps of faith as well. Uh, and when we get to 2020, will it all be a reality? I'm not sure, but I'll tell you what. God will certainly be pleased with, with the steps of faith that we're taking. We don't, God forbid that we be called wiki, wicked and lazy, not because we did something bad, but because we did nothing. That's the wicked and lazy. So failure is not just failing to reach a goal, folks. Failure is failing to set a goal. Failure isn't failing to reach every dream. What failure is, is failing to even set a dream. Failure doesn't mean that you'll never stumble and fall on your face. Failure is when you refuse to get up and you refuse to keep going after you stumble. And I think as long as we're attempting the things for the glory of God, we are right where God wants us. And success is by faith attempting these great things for God. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you think it was mean of God, do you think it was mean of Jesus to communicate this parable and he picks on the one-talent man? Five-talent man, doubles them. Two-talent man doubles them. One-talent man digs a hole. I mean, do you really think it's fair? Couldn't it have been the five-talent man who dug a hole and did nothing? Could have. I mean, let me give you the reason why I think Jesus picked on the one-talent man. Uh, certainly he is not making the point that people with little are the ones who will blow it and the people with a lot are the ones who always do it right. That is not what he's trying to say. All you have to do is point to the widow's might. I mean, there are people who have a lot and do a lot with it. There are people with a lot who do nothing with it. There are people with a little who do a lot with it, like the widow the widow who gave her might. But there are also people with a little who do a little. See, those are your four options in life. You can either do a lot with a lot, a little with a lot, a lot with a little, or a little with a little. Those are your four options in all of life. I think the point he is doing here is this. He's trying to get a point across to some people who have this defective reasoning, and the reasoning goes like this. Well, because I'm not a superstar like so-and-so, then I'm just going to watch and sit on the sidelines. Uh, 
Because I don't have all that much money, like so-and-so has all that much money, I'll just let that person do it, and I'll just sit back here and do nothing. Or because I can't sing like Christy or Lisa, I'm just not going to sing. Or if I can't play like Griff, I'm just not going to play. If I can't preach like Doug, I'm not going to get up and say anything. If I can't teach like, like a Mark Mesnick, I'm not going to teach. I'm I just, I just not going to do anything. But the fact is, you were created for ministry. And you know what the end result of that is? You look around and there are so many Christians who have been given these incredible gifts by God, and it, and it looks like they're the subjects for a Geritol commercial. I mean, they're walking around, there's no spark, there's no joy, there, there's no excitement in their lives. And all they want to do is sit and sour and soak. And I'll, I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. There's so many Christians who have lost the joy of being a Christian. They, they've lost the, the spark in their lives, and they're sitting on the sidelines. And I'll tell you why. It's because it doesn't take any unction from the Holy Spirit whatsoever to sit on the sidelines. It takes no unction from the Holy Ghost to be rational in your giving. It doesn't take any faith at all. And without faith, Hebrews 11, it's what? Impossible to please God. And if you're not pleasing God, you're not manifesting the fruit of the Spirit, which is what? Love, joy, happiness. Until you're ready to risk and have to live by faith, you're not pleasing God. If you're not pleasing God, you're not. There's no joy there. There's no joy. There's no excitement. There's no happiness. So why then? Why? First, let me give you that lesson. Just because you can't do the spectacular doesn't excuse you to sit on the sidelines, bury your talents, and do nothing. Why do we play it safe? Ownership, allocation, accountability, utilization, now motivation. It's fear that keeps me from using my talent. And I think that's Satan's favorite tactic. So I was afraid, and I hid the talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. Let me quickly give you three kinds of fear. One is self-doubt. Oh, I, I, I'm not qualified. I could never do that. I haven't been trained. I'll play it safe. I won't do anything because I don't want to fail. Self-doubt. That's one kind of fear Satan uses. Another one is self-pity. Self-pity is, well, I, I tried in the past and I failed. So are you, are you kidding me? You think I'm going to expose my neck again? How many of you like the Milwaukee Brewers? Anybody like Milwaukee Brewers? Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Well, before it was the Milwaukee Brewers, it was the what? Milwaukee Braves, that's correct. So in 1954, opening day of the season, the Milwaukee Braves were playing the Cincinnati Reds, and there were two rookies that played in that game. How many of you remember Sam Greengrass? Anybody? Probably not anybody. Sam Greengrass, he was a rookie. Opening day, 1954, uh, for the Milwaukee Braves, uh, 
he, he was up four times at the plate and hit four doubles. And yet, nobody remembers Sam Greengrass. Well, there was another rookie who played in that game as well. He went 0 for 4. 0 for 4. Struck out four times. And yet, the amazing thing is, everybody remembers Hank Aaron. He never quit. There was no self-pity there. So don't ever let the fear of striking out keep you from taking a swing. But what about Peter? How many times did Peter strike out? Over and over and over. Who was the one who denied Christ three times? Yet on the day of Pentecost, guess who God chooses to preach? Peter. And 3,000 people trust Christ. Mr. Failure, Mr. Foot and Mouth becomes the first preacher of the church. See, it doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter about your past. What matters is where are you headed right now? Third kind of fear, self-consciousness. What will other people think? Proverbs 29, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Um, Juliana just finished her, her, new, her, her new book. It just came out. It's called Pull It Off. And um, her book really speaks of this. The subtitle is Removing Your Fears and Putting on uh, Confidence. And uh, it's a great book that, that, talks, that talks exactly about that. So it's the fear of man that's going to enslave you, but the fear of God will free you. So what was his excuse? He also who had received one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you didn't sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. And the truth is, that wasn't true at all. Not at all. He, he's trying to blame God for him not wanting to do anything. So he's blaming God. So blaming God isn't going to work. Blaming other people isn't going to work either. You know, how to, you know how to spell blame? I'll tell you how to spell blame. Be lame. That's how to spell blame. So fear causes me to make excuses for doing nothing. So the application of it, sixth principle, if you don't use it, we find out from this parable, you're going to lose it. Matthew 25, 28. So take the talent from him, give it to the one who's invested, who has the ten talents. Now, does that sound fair? God has the right to take away anything from me that I don't invest for him. He gave it to you to invest it. And if you don't, he has the right to take it away. So use your talent for the Lord and watch it grow. That it's just like, it's the whole principle. Everybody has this principle on their body. It's called a muscle. And if you don't use your muscles, guess what they do? They atrophy. But if you, the more you use your muscles, it's not like you, move, you, you use them up and you have less of them. You use your muscles and you get more of them. That's this principle just right here. The compensation, if you use it wisely, you're going to be rewarded. So verse 23, the master says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful 
over a little. I'm going to set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He does that for the five and the two talent people. So those three rewards, the reward of affirmation, well done, good and faithful servant. The reward of promotion, I'm going to put you in charge of many things. And then the celebration, the fact that you're, you're going forward in faith, pleasing God, and experiencing joy. Come, share in your master's happiness. There's the joy and the spark and the happiness. So what about you? Where are you on that spectrum of wasting, spending, or investing? I think the happiest people in the world are those who are giving their lives, expending their lives, investing their lives, their abilities, their resources, their opportunities, for the purpose that God has given them. So let me close by asking one very simple question. This is the pretest question for the final exam. What are you doing with what I gave you? What are you going to say? What are you going to say? The fact of the matter is, what you have is God's gift to you. But what you do with it, how you expend it and investment as your gift to God. Well, let's all stand up and I'm going to close with prayer. You know, I look out on this church and I just see so much untapped potential. There are so many here at Parkview who are wonderful investors for the kingdom of God. And they, they see themselves uh, gifted by you, stewards of, of you, using their gifts, their abilities, their purposes, their opportunities for your kingdom and for the good of others. Just, just thinking of, of Operation Christmas Child, the thousands of people from Parkview who have gifted uh, themselves uh, for, the, for the good of little kiddos all around the world. It's just amazing. But yet, Lord, many are still here um, and burying what God wants them to do with their lives. So let me ask you if that could be you. Is fear keeping you from using your talents? Are you too busy to use your life for the Lord? When God does an audit of your life, what's going to be the bottom line? Is he going to say to you, you've done a great job with what I've given you. I'm so thankful and proud of your faithfulness. Or is he going to say, all you've done is spend your time, wasted your time, your money, your talents, on, on things that don't really even count. So some of you have thought, I'd, I'd like to get involved but I just keep holding back. I think God, through this passage, has a word for you this morning. By faith, trust me and go for it. You're not going to be able to outspend Jesus, whether it be your time, your talents, your treasures, your opportunity. And uh, like Thomas gave the illustration last week, as, as you give it out, God turns on the thermostat and turns up the heat and you get it all back. You cannot, as the little booklet talks about in Irrational Giving, you cannot 
I'll give God. So Lord, may that be true of each one of us in all the areas of our talents and time and treasure. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.